Man, we are excited. You may think that I am on a protein kick up here today because I've got all my hard-boiled eggs ready to eat. Right? I'm not throwing these at you, but I do want to let you know that we are going to have a wonderful time of Easter celebration on April 16th in partnership with the Methodist Church right here in Pine Bluff. We're going to have an Easter egg celebration and hunt for our children, followed by a hot dog lunch here on the grounds. And then Easter morning, that Sunday, we're going to do sunrise service right here on the grounds, right over here in some property that we acquired a couple years ago. And we're going to celebrate the sunrise service right here on our property followed by breakfast directly after in our fellowship hall, followed by Sunday school, and followed by our worship service. And I want to remind you, if you like eggs, well, there's cartons of them outside in the foyer. On your way home today, you can grab a carton, and you can spend some time examining this entire this entire chapter again, all 13 verses today. And I want to share with you what I've titled, The Church Inside Out. What is Paul telling and why is he writing to Corinthian, the Corinthian church about this issue of self-examination and what's going on in the conduct that he has been made aware of inside of the church? Now, I am not a fan of apple pie, y'all. And it's not because of this image, but I just don't care for apple pie that much. But it's interesting, apples. Let me share another image with you. You ever grow up and have you heard, have you ever heard the adage that one rotten apple spoils the entire barrel? Now, you may be thinking that's just an old wives' tale. Well, I'll share with you that it's not a wives' tale, actually. There's actually some science behind it. And in that science, a gentleman by the name of Joe Schwartz has got a Ph.D. in agricultural science. And he explains this concept of what's called ethylene gas that happens when apples begin to ripen and the sugars begin to produce what they they need to produce. And inside that apple, like most cells, there's a thing called pectin. And when the apple produces and begins to ripen, that sugar causes the pectin to break down and it emits what's called ethylene glass gas. Now, I don't know if you can stick that in your gas tank, uh, but there's somebody probably trying to figure that out right now, right? Especially with the gas prices. But ethylene gas gets produced and when that ethylene gas spreads, guess what it does? It contaminates the other apples, causing that pectin to break down, sugars to accelerate, and ethylene gas to cause a chain reaction inside that other batch of apples. Now, it's interesting that farmers for years, because we all like our apples, don't we? No, but that's okay. If you like them, I won't judge you. But we get them year-round, and farmers know that people like apples year-round. So what do they do? They came up with a system a long time ago to figure out, around the 1960s, how do we refrigerate? And I've got a picture for you, the length and breadth that we go to to store up these nasty apples, right? We build big facilities because they realize that if we could minimize the ethylene gas that's being produced... It'll stop the rest of them from rotting, and we can have apples year-round at the grocery store. Now, how does that relate to what Paul is talking about in the church? Now, I want to share with you in our outline, there's three things that we're going to see today from this message. If you'll go to the outline for me. In there, we're going to examine, number one, the examination of the church itself, what Paul heard was going on, what he hopes he doesn't see when he goes back, and the action that he requires from those in Corinth that call themselves believers in Christ. See, ethylene gas... The sin is starting to affect what's happening inside Corinth, but I'd argue inside every church if we don't examine and apply appropriate action. Secondly, Paul's going to talk to them about the protective measures that he's going to require of every church, and in this specific instance, the church in Corinth, and how they can stop this spread and this rot from continuing to go on, and lastly, the proper perspective as we apply the understanding of what Paul wrote uh, to the Corinthian church. So I want you to turn your attention now to God's Word, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to pick up, and we're going to read initially verses 1 through 5, and then I'll share with you 
what Paul is communicating and what we can do to apply that to our own life. So let's read together verses five, or excuse me, chapter five, verses one through five, and then we'll begin to examine the text. So picking up in verse one, it is actually reported that there was sexual immorality among you, and of the kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let who, who let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Let's pray together over God's word. So Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming and gathering together today, the privilege of assembling as the body of Christ and guests and visitors to come to hear the word of God proclaimed, your truth. Father, it's our desire to worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, we pray now that the Holy Spirit would guide every word and every thought in our minds and our hearts and would stir us to action. It would challenge us where we are comfortable. And Father, it would comfort us where we are challenged. Father, we thank you for this day. We pray your blessing upon this word and its impact in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to share with you, the, 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 you ever bite into a rotten apple by mistake? I hate it when they get bruised and you bite into it and all of a sudden it's not what you expected in your mouth. And all of a sudden you have a visceral reaction and you spit it out and you never eat apple pie again, right? Well, I want to share with you what Paul was talking about as sin was running rampant even amongst the church. It's often said that a church is not a place for perfect people because there is no such thing as a perfect church. A church is a place where we gather as broken people, regenerate by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we are learning and striving to become sanctified day by day by day in Christ, in His Christ-likeness, and to to learn and understand how to grow more Christ-like. A church ought to be a hospital for sinners who are seeking health and hope in Jesus Christ. The church often gets a bad rap. Why? Because sometimes we allow bad apples to continue to rot and permeate and ruin the rest that are going on there. So what is Paul explaining to us? I want to share with you five applications that we can take from the text. Notice in the very beginning, in, in, in verses 1 and 2, he calls the church in Corinth arrogant. Now what does it mean to be arrogant? Arrogance to cause someone to be proud or lack humility. Lord knows we see plenty of arrogance today when you turn on the news or you watch a a movie show. We have things called American Idols. We have all kinds of propaganda, all kinds of things on our television that show us probably the worst side of human nature as we watch them. Isn't it interesting how we become complacent with that and just it's part of our natural culture, the arrogance that's going on. But it ought not be in the church. In verse 2, Paul says, you are arrogant about this issue of sin. He calls the sin out for what it is as it was reported to him. He didn't firsthand experience it, but someone told him about the sexual immorality that was among the church in Corinth, amongst their own people, and he even says that it's sin that's not even tolerated amongst the pagans. Isn't that deep? That was going on inside the life of the church. He's calling out, number one, the indifference of sin. Indifference of sin is defiance. And I should have left a little blank there for you to fill in if you want to write it in. But I would argue indifference to sin. What's it mean to be indifferent? Indifferent means I don't really take a position on one thing or the other. We kind of live in a culture that straddles the fence on a lot of issues, don't we? 
Indifference to sin, however, should not be something that the church straddles the fence on. And Paul is calling the church in Corinth out on this issue, saying, you should not be arrogant or boasting about this issue. Just because you're saved in Christ doesn't give us license to continue to sin. It doesn't allow us the freedoms to sin, but rather we should desire to glorify God. What is this indifference? Again, not taking a position on something is being indifferent. How do we do this in Baptist life? I found this out early on. I I made the assumption as a pastor one time at a business meeting, not here, of course, some other church, even though I've never pastored another church. Anyway, some of y'all caught my joke. I realized that there were some people that didn't vote for or against something. But everybody that voted, voted in favor, but there were no nays. Nobody objected. I thought to myself, I pinched myself and said, am I really in a Baptist church? No one disagreeing? That's wonderful. We're unanimous. And then I realized the weeks following, we were not unanimous. Some folks just decided not to speak up. They were indifferent to the issue, at least in a public setting, but they were not indifferent behind the closed doors, right? Isn't it isn't it funny how we can become indifferent to sin in our lives and we don't speak out about it? Well, how many of y'all have ever heard someone tell you, it's not my place to judge, right? Judge not lest thou shalt be judged. Probably the second greatest scripture verse ever memorized by the church outside of John 3.16. Judge not lest thou shalt not be judged. Followed by Jesus wept. And then of course, John 3.16 picks up the top three. But you know, that's not what the Bible teaches us about the church. So I want to share with you some things that we look at. Number one, the indifference of sin is defiance to God. God expects his church to be holy and righteous. And when we're out of line, he has given us a mechanism to repent of that sin and to be in right fellowship with God. And intolerance of sin is absolutely required of the church. Well, what do I mean by intolerance? In a world that breeds tolerance of all things, the church is not that place. Now, the church is tolerant when it comes to for whosoever will come, come to Jesus. And I promise you, he will not leave you the way you came to him. You can repent of your sin and Christ will make you a new creation. God is the most tolerant God of all, making the foot of the cross available to every man, every woman, every child that can have salvation in Christ Jesus. But when it comes to the issue of sin, sin is absolutely intolerable. How do we know this? Let me share with you a couple of verses. I haven't put them up on the screen, but you can write them down in your margin. Did you know that Jesus himself gave the church a way to handle conflict when something was not the way it should be in the church? In Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, the teaching of Jesus is recorded for us on how to apply biblical reconciliation and restoration when there's something going on that's not right in the church. Let me share with you real quickly Jesus' teaching on what he expects his church to do when there's something not right. Picking up in verse 15, Jesus' words tell us the following. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, I should probably repeat that part because often when someone sins against us, what we do is we run and we tell someone else about it. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's between you and him. Don't slander them. Don't go tell nobody else. The first step in conflict resolution is go to that brother yourself and seek reconciliation. He goes on to say in verse 15, part 2, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You see, Jesus is all about restoration, folks. He's all about restoring your soul and your relationship with God, but he's also about restoring the unity and the fellowship of the body of Christ with one another. Sin's intolerable in any way, shape, or form. 
but he gives us a process to follow it. So if your brother's sending at you, go to him, explain his fault. If, you, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. In verse 16, he goes on, because Jesus, knowing our nature, says, I know most of you aren't going to be able to stop there. There's going to be some that are not going to listen or not even want to have a conversation. In Matthew 18, 16, he says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. Pretty good, right? I mean, well, I think we model our legal system a little bit after some of this aspect, right? Somebody else is providing evidence. We're discussing it. We're hoping he'll listen, repent of his sin, and we're back in fellowship. That's always the goal. Restoration, never excommunication, unless it's absolutely the last resort. But here's what Jesus goes on to say. After you've done step one, after you've done step two, and step three, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. You see, the body of Christ has a responsibility for making sure that we examine and we take the actions required to to restore fellowship with one another. But here's what Jesus says. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Folks, that's how Jesus dealt with it. That was his instructions for his church. So how do we bring reconciliation when there's indifference of sin, when there's intolerance of sin required of us, when there's impartiality mandated? Notice Jesus didn't say, but if he's a deacon, cut him some slack. If he's the pastor, well, he gets a pass. If he's the largest contributor to your church, just overlook it. Don't rock the boat. No, impartiality is mandated. It didn't matter who it is. Notice Paul doesn't address who this person was in the church or what role he had or what his position or what his title was. We're all equal under the judgment of God in accordance with his word. We all are required to walk sinless the best we can, and when we fall, we repent of it. But notice in verses 4 and 5 of Paul's text here that there's an examination and a judgment that's being pronounced on him. Let's go to verse 3, and we'll pick up there. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You see, God is going to judge that individual. He may have his salvation secure, but he will give an account for what he's done in his walk with Christ during that time frame. But lastly, notice there's an impending restoration, hopeful, of his soul. That while his flesh may be destroyed, Paul makes it clear that there are some sins that do lead to death, and there are others that do not. We not ought to pray for those things. However, some sin does lead to death. You ever seen someone get killed in a drunk driving accident? When someone became a drunkard and indulged in too much wine? That's a sin that led to death, I would argue, in that case, Right? Impending restoration, however, is always the goal. So Paul teaches us clearly here that we as a church are to examine the body of Christ, the membership. Matter of fact, today we finished up our last membership class. Uh, for, for those that are attending here, we go through a, a four-week process of explaining what does it mean to be a member of the body of Christ. Because you would be surprised at how many people have never seen how God expects his church to be led and organized and structured for the body to gather together. And we realized early on that there's some expectations that our members don't even know that they're supposed to adhere to as being part of a local body of Christ. So how do we hold them accountable if we don't teach them? And how do they know what to do if they're not taught how to do it? 
So we put in a membership class, and even today we talked about our, our membership covenant, what's expected out of us. Here's what I know. If you expect nothing, get what you expected. Don't be surprised when it happens. Often you get nothing, right? I remember the illustration of Charlie Brown one time when he, him and Lucy were out in the backyard playing, and Charlie Brown had a big bow and arrow. And he drew that big bow and arrow back, and he had the arrow, and he was aiming at a fence, and he looked away, and he just let it fly. And Lucy, like she normally does, she said, Charlie Brown, what in the world are you doing? And Charlie Brown said, well, this way, Lucy, no matter what happens, when I throw the arrow, I run over to it, and I circle it with a big old red circle. And no matter what, every time I hit the bullseye. The principle is, if we don't know what we're aiming at, we're going to miss it every time. The same thing with church membership and expectations out of the body of Christ. If we don't know how to apply Scripture to the organization and execution of being the body of Christ, being the church, we're going to miss it every time. We're not even going to know that that's unhealthy behaviors that are going on. And what was happening in Corinth was absolutely unhealthy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18-20, through 20, Paul tells Timothy, this young pastor, who is going to Corinth, who is going to be pastoring in Ephesus, he tells him the following, The church I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among those are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may not learn to blaspheme. You see, Paul had dealt with this issue of church discipline with several men. He's sharing with Timothy what was happening. Notice, I love the way he described it, though, what Timothy would be dealing with. Good warfare. Folks, spiritual warfare is alive and well for the church of Jesus Christ. For each individual believer, there are things every day. How many of you, by show of hands, check your Facebook today? It's not a sin, y'all. Y'all can do that on Sunday. It's okay, right? Now, anyway. How many of y'all have saw something on your Facebook, your social media, or on an email, or on an advertisement, or on a commercial, on your television while you're sitting there with your child, something you didn't want to see, didn't need to see, hoped you'd never see again, right? And then you begin blocking as quick as you can. I don't want to see that junk, right? Folks, there's a spiritual warfare that's going on for our hearts and minds that Satan is waging and using every single device possible to help get into our homes, get into our lives, get into every fabric of who we are and what we do. Timothy was reminded, wage the good warfare. If we don't understand and examine how God expects his church to run and what it means for me as an individual member in the body of Christ, how can we possibly understand the tactics of Satan and what he's trying to do to divide us and destroy us? That's what's happening here in Corinth, and I'd argue it's happening in our churches all over the world. It's happening in this church. Could be, if we're not on guard against it, if we're not watching out for it. Secondly, let me share with you, look in verses 6 through 8 for a moment. Let's turn our attention to verses 6 through 8 and see what was going on as Paul gives us this understanding for the protective measures that we're to take for the body of Christ. Picking up in verse 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, if you're not familiar with it, in the Old Testament time frame, leaven is like what we would call yeast today. 
It's hard to bake bread or bake biscuits or other things that are edible without putting leaven or yeast in them. It causes the bread to rise, and you ever notice when you cut into a nice slice of bread, it's got them little air pockets and little holes, and it's soft and yummy and buttery and yummy. I'm making you all hungry, and I... That yeast helps it rise. But in the Old Testament times, when that Passover meal was to be celebrated, they weren't to have any of that yeast. That yeast symbolized the sin that would permeate throughout all of life. And they were to take and watch and keep the Passover with unleavened bread, with those hard crackers and hard bread, and as a reminder of what sin does in our life. Here, Paul's reminding the church that we can't allow the yeast of sin, the leaven of sin in the church to continue to permeate because it will permeate everything. It will go through and it will spread like that ethylene from those apples. It will begin to rotten everything else around it. In Exodus chapter 12 and verse 14, there's several verses of Scripture that point to this issue. But here was God's instruction about the issue of leaven in the Old Testament. He says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. He says it's not enough to know you can't cook it with leaven. Don't even let it in your home during this preparation for the Passover, during this preparation of this week. He says, For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. What a great symbology of when we sin, how we are cut off in our fellowship with God until we repent of that sin and are restored again. It's exactly what leaven was symbolizing in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, it's clear it was happening in Corinth, and it was spreading like wildfire, so much so that they began to say, Hey, We're an accepting church, y'all. We accept anybody. You want to come in with whatever sin you've got, whatever's good for you, you come on in. You can have it. Do your sin. We're not going to judge you because we were told not to judge. God's a God of love. That was the attitude of the Corinthian church. You want to do what's good for you? You do it. It's okay. We'll actually boast about it, and we'll put it on our social media Facebook page that we take you how you are. Bring whatever baggage you got. We'll love you anyway. Well, the truth of that is the second part of the message, the Paul Harvey version. You come the way you are, but Jesus won't leave you there. Jesus is going to take out the things. He's going to remove the yeast and the leaven, the sin from our lives when we come to him and we put our trust and faith in him because we no longer want to sin. While there's a battle that wages in our life and we still fight this battle, this good warfare daily, we no longer desire those things like the unbeliever would do. In Deuteronomy 16, 4, he says, no leaven shall be seen with you or in your territory for seven days, not just your house, but where you are, where you dwell, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain until night, until morning. This, this issue of being free of sin in our lives corporately as we worship and in our lives personally is so important for a healthy church that Paul gives us some protective measures. Let me give you three of them. Pauline principles for Christ's assembly. Number one, licentious living languishes the soul. It's got a good ring to it, doesn't it? I worked on that all week. Just kidding. Licentious. What do I mean by licentious? A lacking legal or moral restraint, disregarding sexual restraints, marked by disregard for strict rules or correctness. Folks, when the church of Jesus Christ is no longer living by the book, it's no longer a church, it becomes a country club. Say licentious living languishes the soul. It affects who we are in our fellowship with God. We cannot be the church of Jesus Christ and allow sin to just permeate through. Paul was absolutely trying to get this through to the Corinthian church. This is just one of several things 
that he's going to share with them that are just not the way they ought to be. He would write to Galatian, the church in Galatia, in Galatia 5.9, and he would explain to them that a little, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. When we begin to tolerate just a little bit of sin in the church, it spreads like wildfire. And there's all kinds of ways that it tries to creep in. From decisions that we make, or the way we preach, or the song that was selected, or I just didn't get nothing out of that one. Folks, it ain't for you anyway. You're not the, you're not the focal point of today's service. Did y'all know that? God is. We gathered together to worship the creator of the heavens and the earth. I could read Psalms all day long to you about how good and wonderful our creator is. We gathered together today to pay worship to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The attention of our audience today should not be you and I, but it should be Him. And when we worship in truth and in spirit, guess what happens? We stop seeing all the distractions down here because we're so focused looking up here. And when that happens, we become the church He's called us to be. Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is the center of our attention on our worship time. What a wonderful thing that He gathers to us. Number two, a little sin sin affects the whole. If you get nothing else from it, you keep hearing this theme coming back over and over and over and over again. A little sin affects the whole, just a little bit. It begins to permeate. Next thing you know, it opens the door. It gives foot, Satan what we call a foothold. You ever see someone running into a business right when the door is fixing to shut and they stick their foot in the door to stop it? You ever do that with an elevator? Wouldn't recommend it. However, people do it all the time. They stick an arm in and the door hits it and it opens back up. Most of the time, right? That's what happens when we allow sin in. It opens the door back up to bigger things coming in and walking in with us that we don't want there. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 33, Paul reminds us about this principle. We'll talk more about it in the weeks to come. But he says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. You ever heard your grandma tell you that? Bad company corrupts good character, right? Coming out of 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Now, we're called to be salt and life to the world, but we don't have license to do the things of the world as we're shedding light for the world. Does that make sense? We can be amongst them, but we are no longer of them. We are sojourners on a place, on a journey bound for heaven. We are no longer part of this world. We have a heavenly kingdom waiting for you and I. But fifth, uh, thirdly, guard what you are in Christ. Protect the goal, your salvation, your sanctification, your Christ-likeness. Now, what do I mean, guard what you are in Christ? Let me read. For if any man be in Christ Jesus, he is therefore a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. You're no longer what you once were. If you're in Jesus and you're no longer what you once were, why do we desire what we once did? Too often we've never severed the umbilical cord to the sin in our life and the old things and the old ways of life. Now God does that in a process over time, by the way. There are certain things that God starts to take out of our life as we become sanctified, as we surrender to Christ and give Him our life and repent of our sin. Over time, God begins to remove sins. Maybe sometimes the easy sin, right? The language, the the habit, whatever that thing is in your life that you know is a sin against God. Then when you give your life to Christ, say, Lord, help me get over this issue. Help take that from me, because that's the old way. I don't want 
to walk that way anymore. And then all of a sudden, that's no longer an issue for you no more, right? I haven't cussed today in church. Y'all laugh. But when I was first saved, that was a problem, y'all. That was on my mind. Ooh, I'm going to slip. I'm going to say something. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to shut up. I'm not going to say nothing, right? Because I could cuss with the best of them. It was a taught habit. Guess what? I don't worry about that coming out of my mouth anymore. Matter of fact, I was helping a friend do a roofing project one time at his hunting camp. And I was on top of the, the trailer, and we were putting a new roof on it, and I, I used his father's nail gun. And in my little thumb right here, I shot that 16-penny frame and nail right through my thumb at the joint. Pew! And all I did was grab my thumb and said, hmm, that sure did hurt. And now here's the interesting thing. Years later, when I was being ordained by that church, the chairman of the deacon stood up, and his testimony was, let me tell you how I know he was sanctified, or is being sanctified. Because I watched him shoot his thumb with a frame and nail, and he brought this story up. He says, and I watched it go through his thumb, and all he did was grab his hand and say, man, that sure did hurt. <laughs> he said, had that been me, deacon or no deacon, I'd have been cussing like a sailor, but he didn't do it. Sure enough, I pulled it out. And here's a cool testimony. I was so worried about infection in the bone from that nail. I went to the ER, and when I x-rayed my thumb, they couldn't find any damage. Nothing. Not a thing. Unbelievable. I pulled the nail out with a pair of vice grips, y'all. Out it went. Blood squirted all over. Folks, God takes things from you when you give your life to him that you can't get rid of on your own. There is no self-help that's going to make you holy and righteous and fit for the kingdom of heaven outside of Jesus Christ. And it's a process, y'all. It's a process. We all go through it in our life as God cleanses us and makes us holy and purified. Guard what you are. Protect the goal. Because somebody's watching. Now, I promise you, on that ladder, at that moment, I didn't care who was watching me. I had no concern for my surroundings other than not shooting myself a second time or falling off the ladder. But later on, isn't it interesting that people were watching my conduct and it would come back as a testimony to what God had done in my life and how he had guarded me and taken some things from me. People are watching us every single day. Your children, your grandchildren, your grown children, your employer, the people that work for you, that bitter disgusted, atheist-believing person at work who does not like seeing the joy of Jesus on your face every time you walk in the office, who does their very best to make that joy go away, they're watching you every single day. And when they persecute you, they think they're winning, especially when we pray for them and love them with kindness in return for their hate and their anger. What a testimony of what God is doing in our life. Well, let's look at verses 9 through 13 as I share with you a proper perspective of all of this wrapped up. How do we apply this? Now, if we don't do this well, we could do it wrong and cause great damage and harm to the gospel and to the ministry. So let's look in verse 9 and we'll read through verse 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Everybody say amen. We got it, right? Hold on to your hat for a minute. Let's finish the sentence. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. I believe Paul invented space travel, y'all. He tells us right here. Look at verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone 
who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. That's deep, isn't it? He's not talking about the heathen. Verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Boy, that puts a different twist on what we've grown up hearing, huh? Purge the evil person from among you. Now, I'll tell you, most churches, oh, you just got to love them through it, brother. Just got to just, just, just keep loving on them. But, you know, love without confronting the sin is not love. It's masquerading as something that we're not. Who, who masquerades as righteousness? The devil does. He masquerades. He wears a fake face saying, oh, this is righteous, this is good. But in reality, he's trying to get a foothold into our life. So what do we do with this? Let me give you three perspectives that verses 9 through 13 make us aware of that we need to understand as a church. Number one, the perspective of the world. And I'm going to share with you a verse of Scripture that helps remind me every time I'm out in the world ministering or sharing a conversation or a cup of coffee, and I'm doing it with just straight-up lost heathen people, pagans. Y'all listen to this for a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. If you don't have this written down, write it down. Because here is what we are supposed to do and how we're supposed to put things in perspective when we see people who are living out their fleshly nature. And right off the bat, what we want to do in our culture today is we want to condemn and ridicule them for living the licentious lifestyle. We do. I mean, if you look at most evangelical churches, we're very quick to begin ridiculing the world for their sin and their their unrighteous living. But here's what Paul reminds us of as he started this letter to the Corinthian church. Chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person, meaning one without Christ, who has never been repentant, who has never been saved, who has never given their life to Jesus. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Now check the second part out. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Y'all catch that? So folks, I don't have anger or hate or bitterness towards a male athlete swimming as a female. We know it's unjust. We know it's unrighteous. But I shouldn't burn with righteous indignation towards that person because that person, I would assume, has no idea who Jesus Christ is, has no understanding of spiritual things or the Word of God because he's spiritually unable to discern the Word of God. He is confused living in a broken world. And when we deal with lost people, we've got to remember we're coming with a different perspective on life now because God, through His, whole, through His Son and through the Holy Spirit's empowerment, we now have a spiritual mind. We begin to understand the things of God at whatever level you're at when you come to Christ. God has given you an ability through the Holy Spirit to understand His Word. He has not given the same thing to the unrighteous, to those not saved. They don't have the same thing that you and I have. Their spiritual meter's broke. It doesn't exist. And we're called to be salt and light to those people. I remember when we started our motorcycle ministry, since our Faith Riders is at a commissioning service today. Let me talk about that for a minute. And I remember there was some concern in our church because, oh, pastor, what are we going to do? We can't hang around those bikers because they're all a bunch of, you know, they drinking and sex and drugs and all that stuff. Well, what are we going to do? 
We're going to share Jesus with them is what we're going to do. You know, I've learned that the weaker we are in our faith, the less able we are to stand firm in it when we're outside of the church. When we're around the things that we used to stumble over, I don't worry about being around people that are cursing, that I might start cursing again. That issue's solved. But here's what I can do. I can be salt and light to them. I can share with them without living in whatever they're doing and participating in it. Now, we are not going to start a biker bar church. That ain't going to happen, right? That's just, that, that's a little beyond I'm comfortable with, right? However, we, we've got to go to those people. I had a member once share with me how relieved they were when I shared this scripture with them not too, too long ago because they've been taught all their life they weren't to associate with the people of this world who weren't Christians. Barna, who does church statistics, has been doing it for decades, now does a great job, George Barna and his consulting firm. They say that the average Christian within five years of being saved have zero unsaved friends. Y'all with me? Y'all don't look surprised. Within five years, when you get saved, most people have zero unsaved friends. Meaning the very people that we're supposed to be salt and light to, we have protected ourselves against, we've turned away from and said, you know what, I can't hang out with you guys no more. I can't go to that barbecue with you guys no more. I can't take y'all out to dinner and be friends with your wife and your husband because y'all do some things that just ain't the way we're supposed to. Zero. How in the world are we going to share Jesus when we're so uncomfortable in our own skin that we can't associate with other people to tell them the good news that what we have in Christ? It's a challenge, isn't it? It takes some it takes some strength. It takes some spiritual courage to be around people that you know. Oh Lord! Uh, matter of fact, I'll, I'll share this with you. We were at a restaurant the other night eating some some samurai Japanese sushi hibachi, right? And the guy sitting right next to me, big fella, sitting next to me, he orders a couple of beers, right? Not a problem. Whatever, do your thing. But then I looked down and said, I hope those beers don't get too close to my plate because I don't want nobody thinking them are mine. <laughs> Y'all with me? Because nobody knows whether I'd rank one or six of them. Right? So that's a whole nother argument for another day. But I thought to myself, well, it's getting kind of close to my plate, but I love on the brother anyway. Right? And that's what we think when we get ourselves in those positions. We're like, what's somebody going to say? What are they going to think? What's Jesus going to think when he put us there and allowed us to share the love of Christ? When he said, you know what? Remember all those heathen guys, gals, and coworkers that were not saved, apparent by their attitudes? What did you do to share the gospel with them? Ooh, that's going to sting, isn't it? Well, I thought I was supposed to be separate. I'm the called out ones, right? No, I told you to be salt and light to the world. A city on a hill that can't be hidden. A light shining as a beacon, a rescue beacon. You know that's the purpose of a light tower? You go out to the coast in Currituck Island or wherever, and you see the great towers that are there for the lighthouses. The purpose of that light is to warn the ships that can't see for themselves through the dense fog and smoke, who didn't have today's navigational aids to know all the GPS navigation systems. Those, those lighthouses served as a beacon to help cut through the fog where others couldn't see to help them see more clearly. Imagine what happens if those lighthouses never flick their light switch on in the midst of deep fog and storm. Folks, we are living in a time of great fog and storm and turmoil. And if we don't turn our light on, if we never turn the lighthouse on that Jesus has given us, others will never see the light 
of who Jesus is when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except by me. If we don't flick our light switch on, they'll never see it. And what will happen? Exactly what we're seeing happening to our world. They're running aground. They're hitting the reefs. They're crashing all around us. And all we got to do is turn the light switch on. I'm impressed that during the Great Awakening, there was a revival spirit where several hundred had come to Christ. And it changed the communities and it changed the world. It changed what was happening in the workplace. It changed what was happening in manufacturing. This last year, we have the highest record of baptisms in the state of North Carolina ever recorded at a single event in a given year. On a single day, we had more baptisms in the state of North Carolina than at any time during the Great Awakening and the Great Revivals of our nation. Here's my question. Is it making a difference today? Are we making a difference to our community? Are we turning the light switch on so people can see it? So that's the perspective of the world. They can't understand the things of God because they're spiritually undiscerning. But the perspective of the church, and I've already shared with you Matthew 18, 15 through 17. But let me share with you Titus 3.10 again. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. You see, we want reconciliation. We want restoration of our fellowship with one another. But sin absolutely could not and should not and cannot be tolerated amongst Jesus' church. He makes it very clear to us. And God reserves the final judgment. 2 Thessalonians 5, or chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. It should be chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. I apologize for the error. He says, This evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, worthy of the kingdom of God. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well. As to us, and when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. You see, the perspective of the church, we know that the fight's not ours. The fight belongs to the Lord. And we know that on that day, the Lord will hold accountable those who are unrighteous and the righteous for their actions in Christ Jesus. But I want to share with you how Paul concludes it. The perspective of the church, the perspective of God, as I just shared with you that verse, and I think that's the third point, the perspective of God, is that God indeed will judge. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed him, because our testimony to you was believed. Paul would close out his second letter to the Corinthian church by sharing this issue of what we all strive for. Sin and dealing with sin is always a challenge, and it's always perplexes. I had a situation not too long ago that just literally grieved me in my soul to have to talk to this person about an issue, but I had to. And until I did, it wouldn't let go of me. And after it was over, things were reconciled and there was joy again. But it burdened me. All I was sick about this issue, y'all. You ever get sick about something? A decision you made or a decision someone else made just sickens you to where you're just emotionally a wreck from it. But isn't it wonderful that our goal is restoration? Let me share with you how Paul would close out this letter. 
Now, if anyone has caused pain, again, he's writing to the same Corinthian church, but in another letter that he wrote to them, 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, he's caused pain to all of you. For such, one, for such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You hear Paul's heart? After the discipline was administered, after that person who was sleeping with their husband's stepwife or the wife, a step, stepmother, Paul says, after you've done all those things, don't be too harsh. Don't be too judgmental. Restore that brother. Otherwise, he may be completely wrecked in his faith, right? He goes on to say, and grant relief to all of you who are afflicted as well. When the Lord, excuse me, I'm reading the wrong verse. For such a one as this, the punishment by the majority is enough so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. And indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we should not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his design. You see, God is the ultimate judge. And Paul's telling us our role is restoration. The ministry that God has given us all is the ministry of reconciliation, helping people be restored to Christ Jesus. So let me close, and I want to share a, an illustration with you. There's a thing in a natural element of stone. It's called zeolite. Zeolite was found in the, the late 18th, 19th century. In Japan, they had a tradition of storing their apples in this volcanic cave. And for some reason, those apples wouldn't go bad, and we didn't know why they were going bad. So one day, scientists went into this cave in Japan and started, started probing around and taking soil samples and whatnot. And what they found was in the volcanic ash in that mountain, there was a mineral called zeolite. And zeolite had a natural absorption process that it would naturally absorb ethylene gas. And now the science behind why the apples weren't going rotten is because they had something on the outside that was absorbing the gas, and making it neutral, if you will. Now, you may have never heard of zeolite, but I bet it's in your home. It looks like this. It looks like a picture of green vegetable bags. Consumers today and marketers of selling produce know that if they can impregnate plastic bags with zeolite, that, that zeolite helps when you store your bag, your, your vegetable inside of it, and you tie it up, it doesn't go bad or ripe as quickly. Folks, we have zeolite in our homes, and we didn't even know why that bag was green. We just thought they chose green for some reason. Made the lettuce look better, right? Made the apples grow better. No, because those bags are impregnated with zeolite. It helps absorb the ethylene gas that causes it to rotten. Do you know spiritually in every one of our homes and believing homes, those who call themselves Christians, we have the rock that absorbs the same thing that harms us in our life? We call it not zeolite, but we call it the cornerstone. We call it Jesus. We have the Word of God that when we're living our life, like that zeolite bag protects the fruit, the Word of God protects you and I from the harmful sin and issues that want to corrode and destroy us. And when we live by that and we understand its precepts, it will keep us safe from the harm that the world is doing all around us. Not even if it's harm someone else is doing. That comes to us and corrodes us like those rotten apples. When we stick to God's word, we trust in the rock of our salvation 
it will indeed keep us free from sin. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I close our service today by asking you a couple questions. Do you know the rock of your salvation? Do you know that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except by him? Has there been a day in your life where you know without a shadow of a doubt that you've placed your trust and faith in Christ Jesus? Friend, if you don't know when that day was, you're not saved. Now, I'm not talking about knowing the date. The dates can fade. But if you don't know that it happened for you, that there was a day where you repented of your sins and you trust Christ with your life, then you're not saved. You may have done something when you were a little child, but you may have been as far from Christ as could be in living a pagan life your entire adulthood. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you been bound by His faith, His truth, His life, His way? Do you know Christ today? If you don't, you can. I urge you, don't leave here without knowing. Leaving here without accepting Christ is making a decision to reject Him for who He is and for what He's done. If you're watching at home from wherever you may be, to not accept Christ is to reject Jesus. So I pray if the Holy Spirit is leading you to know you need a relationship with Christ, please contact me. See me after the service. Come down while we sing our last song. Walking an aisle doesn't save you. Praying with the preacher doesn't save you. I can't save anyone, but God can. And I can share with you how. And church, I pray that we be a church that understands how God expects His church to be. And I pray that we live that with our fullest ability sticking between the covers of his word. So, Father, we thank you for the privilege of this day. We thank you for the worship of our spirit and in truth as we come here today to praise you, to honor you, to worship you, and to be edified by the reading of your word, the proclamation of your truth. Father, help us to apply it to our life. And, Father, give us strength when we fail you. Keep us close. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.